All right. Maybe would you mind selecting that? Let's see if we've, if it hasn't actually uh, fallen apart yet. I'm, I'm having too much fun with the this week in woke slides. So, <laughs> all right. So I'll just leave that up the whole night. I think. Um. So I'm getting I'm getting all excited because um, I'm getting more and more snitches who are sending me insider emails um, about stuff going on uh, around them and what's going on. So I'm, 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 all, I'm all thrilled about that. So I get an email from a family whose, whose kids are a part of the Manitou um, public school system. And they've announced a new curriculum that they're implementing inside of the Manitou Springs school system. And this comes from the Western Educational Equity Assistance Center. Now, doesn't that just sound like a wonderful name for some curriculum? So this is actually based out of Metro State um, in Denver. It's, it's, a, uh, um, it's a community college actually in Denver, but it's a collection of educators who are sort of inside of the social justice world, the critical theory world. You go through their About Us page and so forth, and it's just you, you very quickly kind of look these people up and you see where they're coming from and what they're doing. And so part of what the Manitou Springs uh, School District has done is they've just told parents this is a lot of the curriculum that we're going to be implementing and using to work with a lot of the kids. Now, the primary thrust in this uh, curriculum, um, it's, they call it anti-bullying curriculum and striving for equity in education. And you read through a lot of their stuff and you think, oh man, this is, this is great and this is great. This is, this is at least okay. But you just go through their resources and their frequently asked questions and so forth. And you pretty quickly understand that, uh, that uh, this, this actually comes with um, the whole worldview, the moral assumptions that are built into uh, what we're calling the woke worldview. Okay, so that, that term that we use for woke worldview is covering all of these things we've been talking about for several weeks. It's the shorthand that we're using. So a lot of this has to do with um, uh, sexual ethics and so forth. There's a little screenshot of part of that curriculum. They're teaching teachers to do X, Y, and Z with students as far as the LGBTQ point of view goes. And then what's always interesting is when you find stuff like this on someone's website, I know it's a little bit hard to see, but the, the teaching tolerance section there in the bottom, um, this is a project of the Southern, Pol um, Southern Poverty Law Center. So the po Southern Poverty Law Center for several years now have, has made themselves infamous by collecting what they call the hate speech list. And you can go to their website and you can click on your city and on your state and you can see who in their state, who in your state is a hate speech group. And it includes Christian groups um, in the state of Colorado that just simply identify as Christian. So one of their markers for a hate group is a group that is Christian identified. They actually have a whole category for a Christian identified group. They are an interesting and very provocative group of people. But uh, this is, you know, so this is not just something that happens again somewhere on the East Coast or in Silicon Valley somewhere. Um, this is something that uh, is coming out of Denver and is actually a part of some of our school systems now too, um, right here in our backyard. Now this next one um, is just for fun. Now just, just kind of let this sink in for just a second and let the, let the, let the complications sort of roll over you for just a moment or two. So New York City, rather famously, several weeks ago implemented a vaccine passport policy um, for all indoor events and gatherings, not just stadiums and big things, but restaurants and, and on and on and on. And uh, New York City has been rather famously, I think in the last year and a half, um, hand in glove with uh, BLM and their projects and so forth. And now we come up upon a problem where a hostess um, asks some uh, African-American women who are traveling from Texas for their vaccine passports and just everything blows up. So now BLM is going to protest NYC restaurant where black women were denied service due to lacks, lack of vaccine proof. Which, which one do you do here? Who wins, who loses in this one, right? So this woke ethic is actually starting to consume itself. It's like that snake that just kind of keeps eating its tail. Who's going to win? Who's going to lose here? 
So this was the headline yesterday. The headline comes out this afternoon. It's even more complicated than you would think. So the protests began today out inside of this little restaurant somewhere in the middle of New York City. And uh, they were yelling things about white supremacy and white power. And that's why these women were denied access into the restaurant and so forth. The restaurant then verified with the New York Times that, well, the hostess who denied entry were Asian and Latino. So nobody was white in this whole thing. But you've got this whole set of assumptions. And now you've got this circular problem. The New York Times, it was a couple of weeks ago, um, they were writing about these vaccine passports in New York City. And they said at the time, roughly 28% of young black men were vaccinated inside of New York City. So you've got the creation of, according to their own standards, a systemically racist system if you impose a vaccine passport. In some 70 to 72% of young black men are not vaccinated. What do you do with that? Well, here's one of the things that's going to end up happening with that, right? So this woke ethic just keeps unfolding over upon itself. Now, <clears throat> one of the reasons I bring this up is that I want to spend just a couple more minutes <clears throat> I'm talking about the woke ethic itself, why it does this, why it ends up with complications that are like this, that are unresolvable complications, and complications that will just keep getting worse as time moves on. So the woke ethic, and we've put a lot of the pieces of this puzzle together so far, but let's make sure that we're just kind of clear on a few things. The woke ethic begins with the primacy of the individual. So when we speak of ethics and what is morally right and wrong, or we can eventually throw in what might be religiously right or wrong inside of that mix, the woke ethic says there's no such thing as an objective moral truth, but it comes out of subjective experience. And so a person's, and this is that phrase that we talked about a while ago that we hear a lot, a person's lived experience is their only access to truth when you say stuff like that, then you can't oppose what someone says if they label it as part of their lived experience. So morality becomes very subjective. Grasp on truth becomes very subjective. So this is core to the woke ethic that an individual's lived experience, their perception of what is true is kind of the final answer as to what is actually true. The whole true for them, true for you thing in the woke ethic is a very real deal. Furthermore, inside of the woke ethic, we've got this problem. More and religious truths are not just things that don't exist or you can't access, but if someone proposes a moral standard that belongs to everybody or a religious standard that we think may belong to everybody, the line now is, well, that's oppressive then you're imposing your point of view on somebody else. They have a different background. They have a different experience. So what you're doing is oppressive. And remember now that the world is divided into oppressors and those who are oppressed. That's the structure of society now. That's, that's what makes things right or wrong. So if the moment someone is labeled oppressive, they immediately become the bad guy. And so the only way to fix being the bad guy is to cease being oppressive, is to cease talking about truth, um, religious truth, moral truth, and increasingly anything that can be considered true at all, including mathematics, history, and on and on, right? This cycle just keeps spinning further and further down all the time. <clears throat> so to be adequately woke means that you have to oppose truth claims, at least certain truth claims, okay? This breaks down eventually, but this is the basic thrust. You have to oppose truth claims. We've discovered you have to oppose claims of reason, the use of reason and logic, including things like mathematics, all of this is oppressive. It comes from the white hegemony, uh, the white European background, even if you go as far back as Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, morons, right? They're all oppressors and oppressive. I, said, I always know someone's going to get some of these references every now and then. 
So to be adequately woke, you have to oppose all of that. You have to reject all of that and all of the artifacts that come from that belief system as well. Anything that's inside of the Judeo-Christian belief system has been oppressive, and we have to reject it. This is why, in large part, things like capitalism are rejected, because it's labeled as oppressive, and people talk about it as if it is oppressive, and it comes from the, the Western white world, and so, you know, it's been used to oppress, boom, 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 so we have to get rid of it. Uh, we've talked about the whole whiteness thing uh, several times. All those things just get lumped in that category. This is all part of the woke ethic. And remember, I keep saying this because this just keeps drilling itself into my brain as well. As we talk about this worldview, we're not talking about something that wants to fix problems around the edges. It wants to fix the very core of what we believe to be right and true and just and on and on. So they're actually right at the very core of what we believe to be right and true. And by we, I just mean culture itself. And so this is important. This is an important thought when it comes to this idea. When objective truth or your ability to access objective truth are denied, all that's left is power. All that's left is power, okay? If you get rid of the idea that an objective truth outside of us exists, you're left with nothing but us and what we say is right and wrong. So if we as a group want to decide what is right or wrong morally, who gets to impose their will on everybody else? Well, the people who have accumulated enough power to have their way. So you, when you get rid of truth, you actually open the door to nothing but power. And it's the irony of the position. They claim that truth itself is oppressive, but in order to get people to believe that there's no such thing as truth, you have to overcome every human being's innate sense that there is such a thing as truth. Does that make sense? You actually have to overcome it. In other words, you have to overpower them. You have to overpower them politically. You have to overpower them through education. You have to overpower them socially. You have to overpower them on social media, uh, make them afraid to say X, Y, and Z, maybe actually even change their minds. You actually have to exercise power to get your way. Now, I've, I've been, this is a thing for me because I've been reading about this and dealing with this for a, a long time now in large part because large sections of the evangelical church fell for this 25 years ago. Um, it was called the emergent movement. Um, and these are young Christian pastors 25 years ago. I still think of myself as a young Christian pastor. I, you know, I'm just going to hang on to that through delusion as long as I possibly can, right? So... <laughs> But 25 years ago, when I was actually relatively young Christian pastor, this emergent movement arises, and what they're doing is they're trying to interact with a postmodern worldview. And so their reaction to that was that, well, postmodernism teaches us all these things about truth and access to truth and how it doesn't work and all of that good stuff. And so we have to change our sense of narrative and truth and story. And so they took the objectivity away from Christian doctrine and teaching, and they turned it into story. So they accepted the postmodern worldview and began to chip away at truth itself. And surprise of surprises, a lot of those Christian ministers and pastors and teachers who were at the tip of that spear 25 years ago are no longer Christians. In fact, they're very vocally no longer Christians. So they just whoop, removed themselves out of objective truth and tried to pull as many people along with them as they possibly could. So, <laughs> I, have, I, I have blog posts from probably 2004 and 2005 that tell you that within five to ten years, so-and-so is no longer going to be a Christian. And it took two or three. It didn't take five or ten. So, you know, I may not be a prophet. My wife thinks I'm a prophet. <laughs> no, no. It's, it's not prophecy. It's just what I like to call logic. 
<laughs> What's that? I know it's very oppressive. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I don't mean to make anybody feel left out here <laughs> or hurt. What a, yes, what a sleight of hand, because this is right. If you're part of the oppressor group, you can't talk about truth or reason or morality or religion because that's all oppressive. But if you are somehow inside of that intersectional world of the oppressed individual, your lived experience can now be imposed upon, and you can actually get somebody fired from their job if they don't say the right thing. You can, you know, these articles just keep showing up, these professors who keep losing their jobs and people who keep losing their jobs because of Title IX implications and on and on because of, uh, you know, one group labeled as oppressed gets to just kind of do this to other people who are labeled as oppressors. It is a wonderful little sleight of hand. And it's an important thought for us to keep in mind because... Belief in truth or belief, belief in truth is, is really just a belief in the way things really are. The, the way uh, the, the author and philosopher Dallas Willard puts it, reality is just what you bump into when you wake up in the morning. Or he'll say, it's just what you bump into when you're wrong because reality just says, oh, I'm right here. So what does it take to get somebody to believe something that is just sort of objectively true versus... What does it take to make somebody believe something that is objectively false? So think about it like that for a second. What does it take for me to get you to believe that the sun rises in the east? We just kind of point you in the direction of east and we wait for the sun to rise. Yeah, <laughs> you have to get up. By the way, we have prayer tomorrow morning at 5.30. <laughs> There's room for you here. <laughs> and you will be able to watch the sunrise in the east tomorrow morning, whether you like it or not. But what is that process? That process is just pointing to something and saying, there it is. And we all have access to that thing that's outside of myself. I have nothing to do with that. My belief in the truth of that has nothing to do with you or with it or with me. I just bump into it every morning. So that's what's true. Now, what does it take for me to get you to believe that the sun rises in the West? Right? It's the, it's the Star Trek episode where Captain Picard is told there's X number of lights when there are a different number of lights, and he'll be freed the moment he lies about the number of lights that are in the room. It's the end of the book, 1984. It's the same story. It's power, 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 power. If I can get you to believe something that is false, I have power over you. So this entire system is based on power. This entire system is based on trying to get people to believe things that are, are objectively ridiculous or objectively false. This is why education is so important. That, uh, you know, we change the curriculum, we work in education, we get a hold of the kids kind of early on. This is why social media pressure is so important. We can at least silence people who believe differently. And if we're lucky, we'll get some of them to switch sides as well. It's just power, 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 power. Which is why this phrase we talked about early on is so important. Do not live by lies. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, that little essay that he wrote, he said, we just learned we had no military power. We had no social power. We, we had no um, media or political power. All we could do is get together with each other and talk about the truth and refuse to live by lies. Don't give them your soul, he said. You may not be able to do much else. Just don't let them into your soul, right? So, and it becomes the foundation for what we sometimes call virtue signaling, 
It becomes the foundation for how woke business works. We talked about this a little bit last time. Virtue signaling. Uh, there's a British journalist by the names of James Bartholomew who claims to have coined the phrase virtue signaling. This is how he describes it. One of the crucial aspects of virtue signaling is that it does not require actually doing anything virtuous. It does not involve delivering lunches to elderly neighbors or staying together with a spouse for the sake of the children. It takes no effort or sacrifice at all. It's a candy coating where you can tell everybody, I do these things, I believe these things, and then you can act like anything you want. You can behave any way you want to. It's the candy coating that matters. It's, it's, it's the glitter on the cow patty, right? Hoping that the only thing people see is the glitter and nothing else. This is what virtue signaling is. This wonderful book, Woke Inc. I mean, if you're half interested in this kind of stuff, May, can you click to the next? I don't know what. Oh, no worries. There we go. It's, it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating book. But this guy is CEO of a biotech company, a graduate of Harvard, all this kind of stuff. He talks about how this kind of ethic, this virtue signally works inside of um, woke businesses. And this is part of what he says. Thanks to woke capitalism, the rules for morality itself are now up for sale. But stakeholder capitalism gives us the worst of both worlds. Woke capitalists in America to get to make money with their dictator buddies around, uh, abroad, and act like they're saving the world back home. So this is at the end of the chapter where he talks about all these businesses that are doing, um, they're, they're making money hand over fist under the table from the Chinese Communist Party, while here in the U.S., they have their diversity and equity directors and they're saving the world and they're recycling bottles and they're using wind power. All the while, they're helping to fund genocide in China. He says, this is how it works. And when you remove objective morality, you've got nothing left but this kind of thing. That candy coating, that glitter, that's really all you need. And he says, they've got enough power um, that this is actually what these businesses now are doing. All right, so this, this is important stuff because all of, this, um, all of this woke worldview, it eliminates God. And when that happens, anything is going to become possible because whoever has enough power to get their way is just going to get their way at least for a period of time. So almost anything becomes possible. And it is inherently destructive it is not constructive. It promises a world of justice. It promises a world in which it puts things back together the right way, but all it does is tear apart and literally burn cities to the ground. It doesn't know how to build anything because it doesn't have a moral core. It's taken all that away to begin with. So it's inherently destructive. And these kinds of things are what keep driving me back to the book of Ezekiel. So we're going to spend some more time in Ezekiel tonight. We're going to go back to this um, sort of broad outline of the book of Ezekiel because the way God talks to his people through Ezekiel, his people in that day, the, the nation of Judah who are in exile and experiencing um, a couple of waves of exile, and then the way God talks to Ezekiel about the rest of his people as time moves forward, if we have time tonight, we'll get through a passage of Scripture that begins to use eschatological language. What God starts talking to Ezekiel about in chapters 33 and 34 begins to hint at there's more coming. God is going to do something even bigger than bring his people back from exile. And so God is talking to Ezekiel and through Ezekiel to his people about their rebellion, about how God actually sees through everything they think that they have done and what it means for God to bring his people back home. So I just continue to be drawn back to this book and um, I'm really looking forward to working through this section, um, especially chapters 33 through 38, um, to talk about what's going on inside of this book and, and what it means for us, why it's important for us to understand Ezekiel in these prophecies. So let's talk about this outline of Ezekiel here for a couple of moments. The call of Ezekiel, chapters 1 through 3. 
So this is where Ezekiel receives that first vision right at the very beginning. He is in exile on his 30th birthday. He is of the priestly lineage, so he should have become a priest that day in the temple in Jerusalem or wherever his priestly family had lived, but he's in exile, and so this is a sorrowful moment. So he's separated from his life's work because of the rebellion of God's people. And then God shows up and we get that incredible throne scene, the cherubim, the wheels within the wheels, the sapphire throne and, and the flaming fire and on and on and on and on. And then God starts talking to Ezekiel and, and he calls Ezekiel to be his watchman, to be the guy who talks to um, the exiles and to see how God's plan is going to unfold. So those first three chapters are dramatic in all kinds of ways. The fall of Jerusalem, or the fall of the nation of Judah, the final exile of the nation of Judah, and then specifically the city of Jerusalem, happens in chapters 4 through 24, or that's what um, God talks to Ezekiel about, is about the people of God and their rebellion and their fall. And one of the beauties of the book of Ezekiel um, are the images that God uses. And God does strange things with Ezekiel. And then he shows him these really interesting visions and he portrays his relationship with Judah in all kinds of interesting ways. And then the nations themselves are judged, especially places like Tyre and Egypt. But any of the other nations that Judah had been tempted to rely upon God says, don't worry, I'm going to eliminate them too. Don't rely on any of them. I'm going to use Babylon to destroy Egypt, to destroy Tyre, destroy all of these other nations, Edom as well, right? All these nations around Judah. So that happens, chapters 25 through 32. And then we get this growing picture of the glorious future of God's people in the nation of Israel, the completely reunified people of Israel. Now, the reason that is interesting is that by the time Ezekiel is in exile, let's remind ourselves of a little bit of our Old Testament history. So 150-ish years before Babylon takes Ezekiel and Judah into exile, Assyria takes the northern kingdom of Israel and those 10 tribes in exile, and they disappear into the desert. So when Ezekiel goes into exile, that's Judah and that's Benjamin. So that's the southern kingdom and they're in exile. So the northern tribes are someplace else. The southern tribes are in Babylon and now in Persia because the Medes and the Persians have taken over Babylon at one point. And part of what God promises specifically in this section of Ezekiel is that he's going to take both of those pieces of the nation, the northern kingdoms and the southern kingdom, and he's going to put them back together again. And God's going to bring all of his people back. And the, the eschatological language, the, the language of God finishing everything and bringing all of his people back just grows and grows and grows as this section of, of Ezekiel rolls on. So it's really powerful and, and, and beautiful stuff. What we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're going to make our way from chapters 33 to 38. And so here's part of the movement in those chapters. For chapters 33 through 36, we're going to read about Ezekiel's job to warn the people of God. God's warning against his um, rotten shepherds. The places of God's... Um, God's judgment against the places of power among his people and surrounding nations, God's concern for his holy name amongst his people, and then a second moment in this book of God's promise of putting a, uh, his spirit inside of the hearts of his people. Chapter 37 in Ezekiel, in a very dramatic book, is another very dramatic chapter. It's the, valley of, it's the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, and the second half of that chapter is a vision of two staffs that God puts together with Ezekiel. And then chapters 38 and 39 are about as controversial as two chapters in the Old Testament can possibly get. And it's the war of Gog and Magog. What's that? Who's that? When is that? Why is that? All right, um, I'm looking forward to getting into those two chapters and, and what those look like. You read through those two chapters and it's just... They're just different. Um, the way the war is described, 
um, the before, the during, the after, God showing up. Um, it's just, they're just different. And it's because they're, I, I believe, very specific, very specific. Um, it has everything to do with the nation of Israel and the world coming against the nation of Israel and nobody coming to Israel's defense except God himself. So that's chapters 38 and 39. Well, let's make our way back to uh, Ezekiel chapter 33. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 33. Let's spend some time in this chapter. So again, part of this, uh, the outline begins to shift um, in Ezekiel 33. So let's start reading. Chapter 33, verses 1 through 6. The word of the Lord came to me. Now, again, if you, if you read prophetic books in the Old Testament, especially the long ones, but the short ones do this as well, they'll break up into stories and oracles, and you can kind of get a sense for the outline of a book or the themes of a book when you pay attention to phrases like that. The word of the Lord came to me and said, or it was on the 10th day of the seventh month. These kinds of things are actual sort of thematic markers inside of a book. So we know chapter 33, things are changing just a little bit. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. God likes talking to Ezekiel by calling him son of man. It's interesting. There's only one other son of man in the Old Testament. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not, um, did not take the warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away for his iniquity in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand." So God is saying, okay, if I bring judgment upon a land or if the enemies come over the next hill and they're on their way to your city or your village, we have a system for this. A city sets up a watch and they set up a watchman. And the watchman's job is to pay attention to these things. They see the enemy coming. And in this context, they see the judgment of God coming. And the job of the watchman is not just look and warn, but to see, to perceive, to understand, to see what's coming over the next hill. And then their job is to turn around and tell everybody inside of the city, this is who is coming. We have to get ready for this. And then God says some interesting things. God sort of cleans up um, guilt and innocence in a situation like this. He says, let's say the watchman does their job. And they accurately say, the enemy's coming over the hill, everybody get ready. The people who just blow off the watchman and say, I'm not gonna get ready, this isn't real, they're going to die and their blood is on their hands, not on the hands of the watchman. But if the watchman fails to do their job, judgment has come because of the iniquity of the city. So people will die in their own sin and iniquity. God says something that... Um, should kind of cause Ezekiel to sort of shiver just a little bit. Uh, he says, but I'm going to require their blood of the watchman's hands. Now, this is actually the second time God has said this to Ezekiel. This was in his call early on in Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. God told Ezekiel the same kind of thing. God speaking to a prophet, I think this is significant. He's telling him, your job is to pay attention to what's going on around you, to recognize the judgment of God, to recognize who are the enemies of God's people, what it looks like, and warn the people of God. Warn them of their sin. Warn them of um, what judgment may come because of their sin. Warn them of the enemy who is on their way into the gates. That's your job is to actually perceive, to understand, and then to actually speak. And not all shepherds do this. Not all spiritual leaders do this. 
But God is calling this of Ezekiel. He calls it of all of his prophets. And the very next group of people that God talks about in Ezekiel chapter 34 are the shepherds of his people that he is deeply disappointed with because part of their job was this job, right? The warning of the watchman on the gate. So, verses 7, 8, and 9. So you, son of man... I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. When you ever, whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. So God clearly, right? Well, oh, hang on to this for just a minute. He's got a job for Ezekiel, and it's a very specific job, and it's his, it's his duty before God to actually perform it. Let's go to verse 10. Um, verses 10 through 20 is, is, is interesting. It opens up with this, this sort of sense from the people of Israel that they are suffering for their sin, but what can we do kind of statement. And then God talks, and then let's just put it like this. Then God starts talking about how virtue signaling works. So let's read through Ezekiel chapter 33, uh, verse 10. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you have said. So Israel has been saying this to God. Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How can we live? We learn as this section moves on, this isn't repentance on their part, but it's recognition and almost kind of a throwing up of their hands kind of moment. Verse 11, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. The heart of God in the Old Testament is the same as the heart of God in the new when Peter um, pulls from Ezekiel in his understanding of Jesus Christ. He says it is his will that no one should perish but that everyone should come to everlasting life. That's the God of the Old Testament as well. It's a beautiful little moment. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked man turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? There's no reason for you to die in your sin. You have every opportunity to live with me. Verse 12. And you, son of man, say to your people, the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall by it when he turns from his wickedness. And the righteous shall not be able to live by his righteousness when he sins. Though I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, none of his righteous deeds shall be remembered, but in his injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, yet if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery, and walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the sins that he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is just and is right, he shall surely live. It's a picture of God's willingness to accept genuine repentance and God's refusal to accept surface-level righteousness. Yet your people say the way of the Lord is not just when it is, not, when it is their own way that is not just. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. And when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he shall live by this. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his own ways. 
So even though these things are happening to the nation as a whole, this exile that goes in waves and they're going to go back and so forth, God has his eye on individuals. And he's saying people who rely on their, um, their shell of righteousness, their public mask of righteousness, the righteousness of their righteousness, that's not going to be what actually makes them right with me. That won't save them. Because what I'm watching is they're doing injustice, okay? It's that candy coating shell God sees right through it. He says, but those who are actually wicked, if they turn around and live according to my ways, then they will be saved. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I'm wanting them to come back to me. So God is calling the wicked back to him inside of this passage. God's eye is always on individual um, responsibility before him, this individual relationship between us and him. So virtue signaling just does not cut it with God. He sees right through the whole thing. And then let's read through the rest of chapter 33, and we'll make just one or two remarks on this. Um, even though it happens very quickly, this is, um, this is kind of one of these little pivotal moments inside of the book. Um, historically, let's think through this again. Ezekiel is taken into exile, um, but he's taken into exile in wave number one. And wave number one is where Nebuchadnezzar takes the cream of the crop. He takes some into exile, like Ezekiel, Daniel, these types. And he pulls them into his world. Um, but the city of Jerusalem and the temple is still doing its thing. Uh, we watched that vision in chapters 8 through 11. It's fallen to pieces, but it's still doing its thing. They rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. He goes back, and that's when the full exile happens. He destroys the city. He destroys the temple. And so the first few chapters of Ezekiel is Ezekiel warning the rest of God's people of Judah, if you do not repent, the city will be destroyed, the temple will be destroyed. A full exile is going to happen. There's going to be death on a scale that you never believed could possibly happen. So Ezekiel's warning and warning and warning and warning. The warning comes true in this section in chapter 33. Verse 21. In the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has been struck down. So this lone exile, this lone fugitive who makes it through the wilderness somehow, makes their way to Ezekiel and says, the city is gone. The city's gone. We know the temple's gone. All of that. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the fugitive came, and he had opened my mouth by the time the man came to me in the morning. So my mouth was opened, and I was no longer mute. So Ezekiel um, had been unable to speak since the night before. And it's, it's as if it's another one of these kinds of moments and signs with Ezekiel. God is doing something, and it's triggered by the showing up of this fugitive from Jerusalem. Verse 23. The word of the Lord came to me. And so Ezekiel opens his mouth. Son of man, the inhabitants of these waste places in the land of Israel keep saying, Abraham was only one man, yet he got possession of the land. But we are many. The land is surely given to us to possess. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord God, you eat flesh with the blood and lift up your eyes to your idols and shed blood. Shall you then possess then possess the land? You break my law. Um, you are wicked people. Why would you possess the land? You rely on the sword, you commit abominations, and each of you defiles his neighbor's wife. Shall you then possess the land? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely those who are in the waste places shall fall by the sword, and who is ever in the open field, I will give to the beasts to be devoured, and those who are in the strongholds in the caves shall die by pestilence, and I will make the land a desolation and a waste, and her proud might shall come to an end, and the mountains of Israel shall be so desolate that none will pass through. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I have made the land a desolation and a waste because of all of their abominations that they have committed. We saw a lot of those exposed in Ezekiel 8 through 11. We watched this happen late in the book of Jeremiah. As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, say to one another, each to his brother, 
come and hear what, <clears throat> what the word is that comes from the Lord. So they know that Ezekiel is giving them the word of the Lord. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, for their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument, for they hear what you say, but they will not do it. When this comes, and come it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. <clears throat> when God calls prophets, interesting things happen. He says interesting things to prophets. And he says this kind of thing specifically to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. I've called you to speak my word to my people because they have to hear it. They have to be brought back to me. And then the next thing God tells them is, nobody's going to listen to you. God even tells Jeremiah, it's going to be so bad, I'm going to make you like a strong, fortified city. That's how strong you're going to have to be to be my servant. It's so bad that Jeremiah complained several times in his book, nobody's listening, I'm going to quit talking, right? Ezekiel's call, very similar. And here God says, they, act, they come to listen to you. They like listening to you. They, you're, you're, like a, you know, you're like an actor. You play a beautiful instrument. You sound nice. You're a great orator when you speak. So they love to hear the words that come out of your mouth. Then they turn around and they don't do anything that you have to say. But what's Ezekiel's job? Is Ezekiel's job to change their hearts and minds? Or is Ezekiel's job to be the watchman on the wall? To faithfully say, this is what God says to faithfully recognize this is what's coming and to speak it and then let, you know, all these other hearts sort of settle their way out with God. <clears throat> so God says, Ezekiel, they're going to keep coming to you, uh, but don't be surprised if very few of them even pay attention to you whatsoever. So <clears throat> chapter 34, I'm glad we're getting into this. We'll see how far through Ezekiel chapter 34 we get. Um, so God has told Ezekiel, here's uh, the word that's going to come. There's going to be some warnings that are on their way. In Ezekiel chapter 4, against God's leaders, his shepherds. That's where the warning begins. And their warnings, but you may recall that we call this passage of Scripture the, the promise of the coming glory of the nation of Israel. These warnings are happening early on because what God is doing is he's cleansing his people and making room for his spirit and his presence in his work. So that's why there's so much warning going on here. It comes with the promise of what God is going to do to cleanse his people. So Ezekiel 34, the first six verses. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who've been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat or the best parts. You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool. The wool comes, do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled over them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. This is brutal. These few verses are just brutal. A glimpse into what God expected his shepherds to do, but they failed to do. A glimpse into how that failure creates pain and scattering. We'll talk about that inside of the lives of his people and how this pains the heart 
of God. And so one of the questions that sort of remains in the open as we end here in verse 6 is, well, what is God going to do about that? And God's answer to that question becomes very dramatic and powerful in the next little section here. But let's, let's think about this. So prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. So this term gets used in the Old Testament for both priests and kings. So you might call it both political and spiritual leadership in the nation of Israel, but the way the nation of Israel is structured is there's really not a hard and fast distinction between the political leadership and the spiritual leadership because all the kings of Israel are supposed to be guided by the law of God and they have priests inside of their courts so the priests guard the, the law of God and they um, help people with worship and prophets are reminding people of the law of God and kings are leading according to the law. The way that we would think of the difference between a president and a pastor, all of this in the context of the law of God. So the shepherds of God's people are shepherding according to or specifically for the word of God. So what follows here is God's case against the people who are supposed to lead his people here on earth. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but I think to me this is really interesting. The role of leadership as it is designed by God, as it's given by God, um, and what God means by leadership and what God expects from leadership. Um, everything that we would call leadership. He expects them to act as watchmen, to be acting on behalf of the good of the people that they are watching for, that they're guarding, so to speak. Their role is to help keep them health and safe, health, healthy and safe, to act as providers. Did you notice that? You didn't feed them, but man, you fed yourselves. You didn't clothe any of them, but man, did you clothe yourselves. You didn't go after any of them, but man, did you live in luxury, right? God has actually set up the role of leadership with these ethical expectations built into the role itself. This is important for us to hear. Leaders, as God designs them, are servants on behalf of the justice and the good of his people. So leadership stewards the thriving of people. This is what leadership does. Now, that to us is different than what we often see happening in positions of leadership in the world around us now. So God's vision for leadership is very different than the way leadership tends to be taken um, kind of in our world, in our universe right now. Um, so leadership really is. It's a role that is designed by God. It's a role that God has actually sort of built into human structures. Um, certain levels of leadership are just needed um, to accomplish all kinds of things. It's just kind of built into the way um, human sociology works, and it's been designed by God. But all of it comes with ethical standards and expectations, all of which reflect the way God leads. So God expects his shepherds to reflect his character his will, and his values amongst those that they've been given some kind of stewardship over. Because all of these things, he builds this case against them. You didn't do this and you should have done this. You didn't do this and you should have done this. All of that gets turned around in the next passage where God says, since you didn't do it, I'm going to do it. This is what I do. This is who I am. This is how I lead my people. And this is how I expect you to lead whatever you've been given stewardship over. Um, a wonderful way of thinking about this comes out of a, a book by um, um, a social commentator, a really bright man. His name is Yuval Levin. And uh, he, talks about, um, he talks about how corrupt leadership is in our world right now and how we view it. He said leadership the way, and he's, he's Jewish, he said leadership the way it's been designed by our creator, by God, is conformative in nature. We take leadership as performative in nature. So in other words, God has 
put people in roles of leadership so that they would conform to the ethical standards that God has given them. So leadership is conforming to the will and the standards and the character of God. He says what's happening now is that roles of leadership are sought out by people who want to use them as platforms for their own performance. So now people search out roles of leadership so they can be seen by more people, appreciated by more people, gain more influence and more power so they're using the platform for themselves instead of using the platform to conform themselves to the standards that God has given. It's a really powerful way of seeing the differences between how God has structured this role versus the way that we take this role. So God is talking to these shepherds. He said, whatever level of influence and power you thought you had, you used it for yourselves instead of using it for what I've asked you to do to use it for my people. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? And it's both, uh, this phrase that we read here, it's both literal and it's spiritual, especially in this context. I, you know, hey, you're a king, you're a governor in Israel, you're a priest. You, when you actually take a sacrifice, you get this piece and then the other, you know, the rest of this happens. But you just keep taking the best all the time. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? So they reveal or, they, or they, they, they revel in the roles that they have instead of um, doing what God wants. They revel in the roles that they have. And while they do that, they teach what is false and they lead sheep astray. So they perform. And while they perform, they're teaching falsehood. They're causing pain amongst the sheep. And God says, three or four times in this passage, my sheep are scattered. My sheep are scattered. They're out there in the hillside and there's no one taking care of them. People should be looking for them. People should be bringing that back in. You should have been feeding them. You should have been taking care of them. But my sheep are scattered. They're lost. So this is the heart of God. This is God's case against his shepherds. Part of what happens in Ezekiel chapter 34 is that it is loaded with imagery that makes its way into the New Testament sometimes verbatim. So the New Testament makes use of this passage in a very similar one in Jeremiah to talk about Christ, to talk about his church, and to talk about his people. John chapter 21, verse 17. And he said to him the third time, Jesus says to Simon Peter the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. What did God tell the shepherds in Ezekiel 34? Shepherds should feed my sheep. When God, when Jesus talks to Peter, he says, if you love me, this is what I want you to do. I want you to feed my sheep. Maybe this even rings in Peter's mind. Oh, I've read that somewhere. <laughs> God got upset with some other guys because they were expected to, and they didn't. So they were scattered. Again, that happened several times in these first six verses. It is spiritual, but especially in the context of Ezekiel, this is a reference to exile. You didn't lead my people well. They never repented. We've already seen the abominations that are set up inside of the temple. So now my people have been scattered in exile, and they are all over the place. Those 10 northern tribes, gone. Or, you know, scattered, right? The southern two tribes, now they're all in exile and scattered as well. So part of what God is going to promise in chapter 34 is, I am going to start bringing them back. In fact, I'm going to bring all of my people back to my promised land. And the language really starts getting interesting in some of those passages. Look up Jeremiah chapter 23, the first six verses, you're going to get something very similar to what we just read. So Jeremiah 23, the first six verses. So let's uh, move on. Ezekiel 34, beginning in verse 7. It goes like this. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord, 
declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves. You can hear God kind of going through his case like a lawyer would. And have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am now against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. I'm just, I'm going to put an end to this. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. So God is now taking this on himself. Um, I follow too many strange Twitter accounts, guys. I'm sorry. You get, get interesting stuff here. Um, let's see if I can read this. I can't, I can't read this. Um, it's, it's a pastor. Gosh, shoot. <laughs> I'm getting old. Can anybody read that? What's that? Not the pastor's name, but the pastor is, is reappropriating a passage of Scripture um, he says, now, if, if Jesus spoke this passage of Scripture again today, he would say, if you're to come after me, get vaccinated and wear a mask over your nose and your mouth. So that's his sermon. And this, this is a video clip. And it's, it's a Twitter thread that has all of these video clips of this guy's sermon who has reappropriated one of Christ's uh, teachings and sermons for his own political purposes and so forth. Uh, shepherds who just do not teach the sheep what Jesus once taught. And so God says, my sheep are without shepherds. In fact, he cuts them off from these evil shepherds. It reminds us of Matthew 9, verses 36 through 38. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It breaks Christ's heart when he sees sheep without shepherds, sheep that are being led astray. He tells his disciples, we need more. We need more. We need more faithful shepherds because there are so many sheep wandering out there without a shepherd. Verse 11, back in Ezekiel chapter 34. <clears throat> we may end in this little section here. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. Do you hear this language of God talking about his people in exile in other countries and he's pulling them back to the promised land? And I will feed them on the mountain of Israel. This is back in the temple in Jerusalem in Mount Zion. By the ravines and all the inhabited places of the country. What was uninhabited is now re-inhabited. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Does it get any better than that? I'm saying, this is, this is what I expected of you, and you blew it. It's broken my heart. This is what's happened to my people. So this is what I'm going to do. So inside of this case against the shepherds and God's reaction to that, we get the beautiful language of God himself actually beginning to live with his people and draw his people to himself. But then we get introduced to this language of I'm going to start actually physically bringing them back into the land. 
And the land's going to be better than it used to be. And it's going to be rich. And it's going to be plentiful. And I myself will be with my people. Now, this is eternal covenantal language as far as the Old Testament is concerned. So we're getting hinted at, and the language grows in chapter 34, of more of this language of what else God is still going to do as he gathers all of his people back together. So this is God's heart. This is God's heart pulling his people back. And we get more of this language again pulled into the New Testament. Uh, This beautiful image that Jesus uses in Luke chapter 15. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. This is a call back to Ezekiel 34. God says, you have scattered my sheep. I'm going to go out there, find them, and I'm going to bring them back. I am going to do it, God says. So here comes Jesus. <laughs> here comes Jesus to take the role of the good shepherd himself, the one good shepherd. And there we have it in John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. God says in Ezekiel 34, there verse 13, I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. So God's promise to pull them back from exile, back into the land with him. A lot of this language even reminds us of Psalm 23. He's going to give them rest in the land. But it's not just metaphorical. This is full and complete. God's promise is I will be with them. I'm going to actually put a brand new heart inside of them. But then on top of that, we're going to dwell together inside of my land. So this eschatological language just continues to grow as we make our way through the rest of chapter 34. So that's where we're going to pick up next time in verse 37 as God begins to talk um, about himself as the judge between the sheep and the goats. Does that sound familiar to any of you New Testament readers? So here it is in Ezekiel. Yeah, Eric says no, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, he gets the movie references, but yeah. (laughs) Um, So as this chapter grows, just more stuff, beautiful stuff. And then we'll... um, uh, we'll kind of keep our, making our way through um, what God has to say through Ezekiel as we go through the rest of these chapters in this section of this book. But let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> help us to see with the eyes of the watchman to recognize what's coming over the hill, to know what is the judgment of God against sin and rebellion to understand what's happening around us at least enough to be able to tell the difference between what is true and false, what is right and what is wrong, what is good for human thriving and what destroys us. And may we be the kind of people who are in whatever circles that you've given us, say, this is the word of the Lord. This is true. This is what is beautiful. This is what is right. And this is what is good. Lord, our world needs more of those touch points, not fewer. Grant us that kind of sight and that kind of courage and that kind of wisdom with these sorts of things. And as always, Lord, may may your word just continue to come alive to us. And as we read this, may we just be in awe over and over with the goodness and the love and the grace and the mercy of God, as well as in awe of your power and majesty and might. Lord, we pray these things in your wonderful name. We ask your grace upon the rest of this week. In your name we ask it. Amen. Amen. See you all next time.